Hey everybody, welcome back to Required Reading. This is your co-host, Dr. Nick Hoffman. Uh, me and Mike are very happy to be back. It's been a long time since you heard us, at least new and fresh. Maybe you re-listen constantly, which, thanks. Uh, it's helped us reach the charts globally, so we appreciate that. In the meantime, we're here to talk about a new graphic novel uh, episode. It's not a new graphic novel, it came out in the 80s. I really should work on my work. In the meantime, we will talk about Mouse, but as you can hear underneath me right now, we have a new theme song written by Davis Burns. Uh, all the information will be in the credits, of course, like always. And we're happy to be back. Check out our Twitter feed, required underscore pod, uh, and we will be running Twitter stuff constantly. In the meantime, thanks for coming back and rating and reviewing and sharing. Thanks, guys. to required reading this is season two we did it Woo-hoo. we finally found time to record whether you wanted it or not yeah. we're back well we want to thank everyone for still being subscribed after a few months quiet uh we're working on summer programming for next year uh, but in the meantime we're back with a new episode and a whole new season uh we've actually scripted out most of this season coming up uh but keep your eye out for twitter feed uh required underscore pod um, on Twitter, which will allow us to, you know, let you know what's coming, yes. give you some hints, and uh, give you some options in the future. As always, I'm your host and uh, engineer, I guess, Nick. And I'm, and I'm Mike. And we're uh, visiting with a graphic novel again to start off this year. Yeah, interesting choice. Um, an, an amazing book. And one that I've taught a long time ago when I was at the boarding school, Brandon Hall. Oh, yeah. Um, but I've never taught it here at Marist, so... Um, have you heard? So the book is Mouse. Yeah, the sh- book we is should Mouse. say that yeah. at some point. <laughs> uh, which is Art Spiegelman's book, uh, as Mike points out when we chose it, the first graphic novel to win the Pulitzer. Yeah. Uh, and I think special letters or something like that because it was in a category for graphic novels. Yeah, they didn't know what to do with it, right. Um, and it is the story of Art Spiegelman's father, um, Vladek. Mm-hmm. Um, as he is in Europe during the Holocaust and gets end up in a concentration camp and ultimately ends up in America. Right. right. Uh, it is uh, dark, and we'll kind of talk about it, but like you said, it's to one degree or another uh, taught. I, I believe it, I saw bar- parts of it, and then I became aware of it when I was at Miami, Ohio, uh, nearby school. Oh, the Ohio State University Correct. has a graphic novel program, and so I got inner library loan stuff all the time, uh, and Mouse was part of that. I'm just curious because, um, I mean, this came on my radar. I have a younger brother, and one summer I was already out of school, and he was he's a very accomplished runner, and he was sure. training in Colorado for the summer and took a class at UC Boulder. Yeah. And um, so it must have been like 93-ish. Um and um, he came back and said, Mike, you got to read this book. And you know, he read it for his class, and I'd never heard of it before. Um, and it blew me away. And so that was like 93, and I think it won, it won the special Pulitzer in 92. Um, and I guess the first edition was published 86, 87, I think. That sounds right. And some of the comics in there individually, Spiegelman had published earlier. 
but that was really my first. I mean, I had comic books before. Sure. But this is my first experience, like something. It, it blew me away. I'd never seen anything like it before. Yeah. And yeah. I wasn't even a teacher yet, but I could imagine, like, man, I just it's one of those books where you wanted to share with people once once you read it. Um, so that was my first experience. How about you? Well, I mean, when I, you know, I kind of stumbled upon this. Like, I fell in love with graphic novels uh, to one degree or another when I was in high school. But yeah, this is the first one that I don't know what you call it, like special topic. Like that, that that's biographical. That's alternative. Um, and you know, I, I read some Spiegelman's other works eventually. Like there were collections because uh, he has a very over-the-top art style otherwise. You know, he looks very Art Crumb or something, like the kind of yeah. stuff that would be in Cracked Magazine or right. alternative kind of stuff. And, you know, college, that's the kind of stuff you're reading, alternative uh, comedy, weird, kooky stuff. So when I saw him doing something else, I don't even know what I thought. I just saw a list probably of graphic novels, and this is one I should have picked up. Yeah. That kind of a thing. Um, yeah, I'm curious. Do you know how long that uh, program at Ohio State goes back? The Ohio State. Sorry. Yeah, please. Um, I have no idea. I just okay. I, I know that when you looked at their archives, they had hundreds of them. So right. I was so like, I, hey. Yeah, I think you, you're much more versed in this world than I am. But sure. I think this is probably transformative as far as graphic novels being studied or accepted as literature. I and mean, he, he hints yeah. at that in here. Um, and if you're interested at all, there's there's an edition that came out about ten years ago. The um, with interviews, and he has the entire transcripts of yeah. interviews with his father and interviews with his children and his wife, and uh, it's really sort of a making of. It's incredible. I highly recommend that if you're interested in Mouse in any way or Spiegelman. Yeah, and they kind of get into the – I mean I, I read it in the – I guess what would have been the original two-volume version of it, mm -hmm. um, and in between volume one and two, there is that kind of like – so Volume One's come out, uh, which I, for you is probably just halfway through your version. Yeah. Uh, how do you feel? Why are the Germans cats? Why are the like? And, and he, it's one of those things about art, I guess, where it just seemed natural to him, and then you start asking, and he he doesn't have an answer. It's it, it's very interesting how this thing kind of comes together. Um, yeah, and it's so meta in that way, um, in that he's telling the story of his father. And an incredible man when you consider everything that he went through to survive the Holocaust. Yeah. Um, and then he's telling his own conflicted story of the difficulties of living with his father. And it was not a real pleasant relationship, um, yet they seem to bond over Vladek telling his story. Um, and so it's sort of, yeah, as he said, autobiographical but historical. And it's just so many different genres. Well, and I, and I guess. Together. Well, and on top of that, it's not. It, it, it's he. He doesn't seem always comfortable with telling his own story, and near the end of the book, uh, which you know gets to his death, it, it's funny because apparently in the publication there's bits of it that comes out in dribs and drabs, and then volume like it starts coming out as a regular piece. I think in 1980, um, and then it goes over the course of several years, and then Vladek dies. And then he comes back to it and then finishes it. And like you said, the first complete edition comes out in like the early 90s. Um, it seems like near the end, Vladek says, you know, I hadn't thought about this stuff for years until you started to ask me. Um, and it's interesting because he is a flawed character. And that's oh, yeah. not to say that any human is ever perfect. But you don't think of people like uh, Viktor Frankl or Eli Wiesel as anything other than these paragons of philosophy. Right. Uh, Vladek is not a perfect person, which is interesting. Yeah, and especially through his son's eyes, who's telling the story here, and, and he, he tells of that conflict there. 
I, I have a fun Spiegelman story. I don't Please, know if I've told you it. this before. So, I, you know, I was really high on uh, mouse, M-A-U-S, we should say the spelling of it, and, um, and Spiegelman in general. And then maybe it was like 10 years ago, I think, he came to – it must have been with the publication of the uh, um, – MetaMouse. MetaMouse, yeah, yeah, that he came to SCAD Atlanta to speak. And I was teaching American Lit at the time, and I couldn't work mouse into the curriculum, but I offered extra credit. Um, to any students that would go see it and I was really excited to go so I drive down to SCAD and I like sit in the second row and then two of my students come in they're sweet little 10th grade girls and Spiegelman comes and the room is all you know excited and he's, he's a good speaker and he starts with a slideshow of his art and you mentioned Art Crumb so he works with Art Crumb at some point and these pornographic comics <laughs> I'm sitting next to these 10th grade girls and their mother and he's showing these pornographic comics that he, he did for a while and I'm thinking this is it I'm going to be fired <laughs> I'm turning all sorts of red the girls are turning all sorts of red That's funny. it was so awkward um, and long story short I asked the girl next day in class fully expecting to get an email like from the principal or something but she said no my mom loved it it was great and so that was fine it was awkward but fine there you go but he did and I remember liking these when I was in high school I didn't know until I saw him he did the garbage pail kids do you oh, remember no kidding. those yeah so that was his art <laughs> And so he he made and he, if you read the the Meta Mouse that that was like his bank. Sure. He could count on that and doing that art for that and that allowed him the creative freedom to do something like mouse at the that, same time. So. That is spectacular. I had no yeah. idea that was it. It's so funny you say that. It, it, it is like you know someone who's an academic historian and then you know God writes Twilight, right? Like it just it's such different levels of art. Yeah. Uh, it's. <laughs> So you mentioned crack. I mean, the same sort of sophomore sense of humor, but it's a very clever sense of humor. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. We used to trade those. I remember. Um, yeah, that was a fun yeah, garbage pail kids. Yeah. I know exactly what you're talking about. I think they're trying to reboot it of all things. Yeah, I think they are. Yeah. yeah. I saw that. Um, so that's my Spiegelman story. It's a good Spiegelman story. Yeah, he was awesome though. I'd definitely either if he's ever doing a you know a lecture somewhere, go see him. He was so articulate and so thoughtful about his art, which you you would expect in a great work like this well and i guess a good segue here is the art of the the book yeah let's talk about it um because when you're talking about the graphic novel uh of mouse it's i mean there may be a color edition somewhere our version is all black and white no, he mentions that in meta mouse that was a, a, a conscious choice yeah. uh, to keep it black and white and it's it's very stark very minimal um and you know for lack of a better way to describe it, it, it seems to have a very broad tip on the pen. Like, there's not a lot of hashing. There's not a lot of, of shade. It's very, I mean, black and white. Yeah. Um, which is a fascinating way to put it. It feels very, um, not simple. I, 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 it's stark, maybe right. is the way to put it. Uh, as opposed to, say, the Garbage Pail Kids, which are full-color, cartoonish, boof, <laughs> like... You know, clownish. This is not. So it's, that that's one of the reasons I'm the most blown away by it. Yeah, and it, it, there's yeah, there's different styles within there, and he he blends it so well. It's so seamless as you get into the you know the syntax. I guess is that the right word? The visual syntax of it all. Um, how he's framing the shots, and um, I guess you call it sequential art, sequ sequential storytelling for a graphic novel. Just how you read from panel to panel and how he frames the panels, um, trying, mm -hmm. trying to find the passage where he, where they come into the, uh, when they first go to Auschwitz, 
um, the way he's drawn it is you know, everything is usually contained um, yeah in my book it's 158 um, everything is usually contained within the frame you know the four walls of the frame but in that page on 158 when they're coming in and you see the the famous phrase over the work will set you free mm -hmm. um, that the image bleeds into behind the others because yeah. in MetaMouse he mentioned that something so massive in in size and psychic uh, that you can't contain it that it was all consuming so he has that image bleed behind the others um, where it's not contained in the little box. I don't know if I'm making sense at all, but oh, yeah. but there's subtle little details that you you see, like any good art or any good novel, it rewards revisiting um, that I hadn't noticed before or from the inside of MetaMouse, what he's trying to do with the the visuals and the setup and the composition of those. Yeah, exactly. And 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 along along those lines, uh, we should talk about the subtlety of the character choices. Okay. Um, uh, the story takes place in two uh, concurrent kind of narratives. One is him getting the interview from his father. Uh, occasionally, uh, with Nadja, uh, his father's second wife, and occasionally with Franz. Uh, Francois, no. Francois is Spiegelman's wife. Spiegelman's wife, right, a French woman. Um, Anya is his first wife, or Anja Anya, uh, yeah. is, is Vladek's first wife. I'm going to go with Anya. Anja. Uh, the chances of me pronouncing anything Eastern European correctly is very small, so I'm going to do my best. Um, but you have these flashbacks, and what they do is they really humanize Vladek, who is a crotchety old man, in many ways, he's almost become this stereotypical. Like he's at one point, they're going for a walk, and he finds phone wire, and he pockets it because right. wire is always useful. Uh, he doesn't like spending any money on anything. He does what my parents do too, which is like, hey, there's this food left over. Do you want it? Here, just take this. I'm like, I, don't, I wasn't going to eat it anyway. Why, right. why are you giving it to me? Um, which, which Spiegelman reckons with in the book, but also in, in MetaMouse, because there's that there's that stereotype of the miserly sort of Jew that obviously the Nazis exploited, and he's but that's the way his father actually was. It's not it's not meant as a stereotype. He's just trying to accurately depict who his father was, and and when you get his whole story that he was so resourceful that he saved everything. That's how he survived. Um, but yeah, Spiegelman wrestles with that idea as he's depicting Vladek, but. It, that's who his father was, and as you said, flawed man in many ways. And it, and it just is it, – it's funny too because you could go that extra step and put words in in our cartoonist, in the in his mouth saying, well, this explains who he is. But he never does that because no. he's frequently annoyed by his father. Right. And it seems like it's a very – it's a man who's – trying to avoid thinking about his past was clearly defined by his past because at one point he even says you had a brother who died as though that's something that still weighs on him which I imagine it would mm -hmm. but eventually you have to acknowledge the son who's alive next exactly, to you exactly right uh, which he doesn't seem to want to reckon with ever yeah um, uh, I mean the narrative of this book is not hard to follow but it weaves in and out so I don't know if you want to approach it from two different sides uh, but effectively uh, from the, the now, the 70s and 80s, it alternates between him with his second wife uh, in New York, and then they fight, and there's like threatens, threats of divorce and back and forth, and eventually he moves down to Florida, um, and they're separated, 
Uh, and the whole time, you know, she moves to Florida. She was Florida. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and Spiegelman is there trying to get interviews with his father. So he just keeps cutting back and forth between this world and another world. Um, ultimately, he gets very. The father gets very sick. Vlada gets sick. Um, and we kind of see his life unfold. Uh, Nadja comes back. And the whole time they're fighting about money. Everything right. is about money. Uh, he even says, like, I got a tape recorder so I can record you, Dad. He goes, I could have gotten you a better deal. Right. As though that matters at all to his son at this moment. Um, meanwhile, the other side of the story is him growing up, uh, floating around Eastern Europe, uh, trying to hide. I mean, we also get this story, which we don't often get, which is he pretends to be Polish, uh, who are depicted as pigs in this. And the way they show that is he's literally wearing a pig mask. That's so brilliant. Yeah. yeah. So here he is depicted as, a, as a, a mouse, a very, as you saw, it's sort of simple, but yet the, the characters are identifiable. You can tell his, his wife looks like his wife. Um, and then, um, yeah, and they have a pig mask on top of that. And just the layers there of identity is so clever um, as he's telling the story, as he's trying to pass as a pole. Yeah. And, and it's so easy then to show, um, I guess you'd call them racial traits, without doing anything else. Because as the Jews are removed and he's hiding out as a pole, you see less and less mice in the crowds, mm -hmm. right? Uh, more and more cats and more and more pigs, right? Uh, the Americans are dogs. And when the Americans show up as GIs near the end of the book, you're like, oh, this is him, but it was after a very tense racial scene where he doesn't want a black guy in the car, and it's a black lab. Yeah. Uh, so it's still a dog, but it's a black dog, and he's very uncomfortable. It's just the way that these characters play off each other is just phenomenal. Yeah, and yeah, the art, and it's tough to talk about the art, or uh, maybe I'm not as articulate, but um, he does some interesting things too. So as you said, some simple drawings, uh, but now and then he'll insert a map or... Um, he talks about how Vladek sort of faked it that he was a cobbler, and he shows Spiegelman shows how you stitch a shoe sole uh, back together. Um, so there's sort of these little bits of outside the narrative, but um, inserting historical facts or facts that you would want to know to make the narrative go forward. Mm -hmm. That you know, as a, a novelist, maybe you could have a paragraph or a footnote or something. So he very cleverly adds that in a visual way. Um, well, and it, it is. It also seems like, and again, we don't get this, but you understand that this is probably something his father taught him, as though it was a way to, if you were a kid, think, oh, great, he's not going to buy me new shoes. He's just going to fix the old shoes. But for his father, it was literally a life-saving yeah. trick. Which Spiegelman rejects. He, yes. he mentions, I don't know if it was this or in MetaMouse, like he says he became an artist because it was sort of the most abstract, non-practical thing um, and so there's that, that push and pull with the father-son relationship. Um, because his father was so thrifty, um, he goes in the opposite way and is not that way at all. That's right. Um, so, yeah, that, that tension in that relationship certainly drives the story. Um, and then there's, there's the interesting part, too. I mean, I guess it's, it's such a sad story, too, that um, Anya had kills herself when uh, Spiegelman is, I think, 20 years old. Um, and there's that section in the middle, uh, Prisoner on the Hell Planet. Right. <clears throat> the, which was a comic that he drafted and published separately before Mouse um, in that autobiographical style, or, I guess. I guess yeah. That goes back to R. Crumb, or 
Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> excuse me. I guess the style, the the thing was the '70s kind of underground comics with an X kind of a thing, right? right. Because at the time there was a group called the Comic Authority of uh, America, whatever, and they would approve comics. It was a way to get rid of like the EC kind of horror comics of the '50s, which pre-satanic panic was what was driving kids to do horrible things. Oh, really? Okay. And so the underground comics were the ones that were published like under under the table. And they would have these kind of weird imagery, and the you know uh, Prisoner of Hell Planet is more of the style of his that I'm used to, mm-hmm. uh, but it was I think originally published in the early 70s, 73, 74. But that kind of a thing never dies because people would license them, buy them, and republish them over and over again. Um, so apparently in like the late 70s somewhere it was just republished, uh, and a friend of uh, a friend of a friend mails it to him um, to say like, hey, you're in this comic. Yeah, and <clears throat> excuse me. It's interesting that it, you know it's something that he published and was obviously his way of dealing with the grief for you know his mother's suicide and and what he felt in his own depression and his own suicidal thoughts. Spiegelman acknowledges there because I think he was um, in a mental hospital for a while. This was a, yeah, because he's dressed in the prisoner on the hell plane. He's dressed as a prisoner there. Um, but the fact that his father finds this comic and, and just the sort of awkward tension there where Spiegelman's pouring his heart out and his art is cathartic that way. Yeah. And how Vladek deals with his own trauma. Yeah, and he doesn't understand. I mean, it, it is a kind of generational thing, too. Like, they don't understand why you would talk about right. trauma in some ways. Uh, but he's also upset that he used an actual picture of his mother in the first frame um, in some ways as though it's incredibly personal. Uh, which is interesting because he's now telling, in some ways, the most personal story. Uh, and obviously we can't get through all of this because it's it's an actual full-length novel, like always. And in some ways the dual narrative makes it hard to get into. Uh, but like he talks about how he had a girlfriend before Anya, his wife, and that they were actually very close, and then she introduced him to Anya, right. and then he fell in love with Anya instead and left the friend. And this is all before the Holocaust. And you're like, well, isn't this a story about the Holocaust? Which is something we don't get from Wiesel, really, right? And so that's what makes this a more interesting narrative in some ways. Yeah, he's a rounded out, you get his full life, and what an incredible man he must have been, because apparently he was a very sharp businessman, very good-looking, the ladies' man, as you mentioned before mm-hmm. that, and, and then... And then all this happens to him, and everything he does to survive um, is really unbelievable. It's it's hard to get your head around everything that he saw and experienced. Yeah, and they said he looked like, um, oh, what's it, Rudolph Valentino? He looked like right, the Sheik. Yeah. And, and there's that recreation of that movie poster of the Sheik. Yeah, I mean, it is very kind of, you know, I mean, 1930s romanticized kind of, uh, yeah, and he, he's supposed to be a great businessman, and it's clearly very adaptive. Um, but I guess the other side of it that we, we will get to is it's also about putting trust in people and then also not being able to ever trust people again, which is clearly what Vladek's personality became later on. Because when he's in Poland, and I'm not even going to try to pronounce the name of that town, uh, I, my, my pronunciation is already bad enough, um, but it looks like Czechoslovakia is spelled with different letters. Um... You know, he's hiding out. He's watching his friends turn against him. He's watching other Jews disappear. And he's using his former business connections to try to keep under the radar. But as the war goes on, because, um, again, if you guys don't know, uh, Poland was blitzkrieged in September of 39, 
And for them, the war is over fairly quickly. The, the Germans and the Soviets divide the country up almost immediately, and they occupy it, and then they turn towards France. But for like actual Poles, the war is brutal, quick, and then a slow conquering by the Germans. Um, so as supplies get harder to get, rationing gets tighter, uh, he finds less and less options. Uh, and that's kind of where he calls in his business contacts. Yeah, and you're, it's an interesting uh, moment in the novel where he's just networking to try and survive, and he goes to one guy that's supposedly going to protect him, and then that guy sells him out. And then a few months or later, when he's in the camps, he is on like burial detail, and he buries that same guy, which I thought was um, some sort of interesting karma for that person. Yeah, and it's it's funny because it's not depicted as cathartic. No, it's just depicted as like a, you know, like there there is no sense of retribution. And again, maybe it's just that I've read Wiesel and you know Victor Frankl more often. But to me, it seems like there's more camaraderie in the camp that they're rooting for each other. Not that there isn't here, but there's also this practicality of living, you know. And we get that when they're on the trains and um, uh, Vladek figures out a way to make like a little hammock, and it's literally sitting above people as they're collapsing from so exhaustion. It yeah, get smothered to death, right? Um, and like bits of food are fought over and hoarded, and Vladek doesn't eat much, so he can keep food on him. Um, Mike, where do you want to take us? Well, I'm just curious. I mean, since Season two, and we're, we're talking about teaching and how have you ever taught this before, or I have not. would you, or how could you see it fitting into American Experiment or American Lit or APUS in any way? Well, to me, I mean, I think what you said at the beginning is the most important part that this is the first Pulitzer Prize winning graphic novel, and so in many ways, because of this, things like Ghost World exist, you know, like. Uh, I wrote a, read a book this summer called Gender Queer about, you know, a woman's transition out. And, like, those kinds of stories just did not exist outside of underground comics. And this lead, lends a certain amount of credibility to the graphic novel as a creative space that can be a storyteller that isn't just about superheroes, right? right? And other revolutionary kind of works in this same realm had all been based around the fall of superheroes instead. There's, there's nothing heroic about... I mean, well, there is, but right. right it's an yeah. everyday kind of hero. Yeah, exactly. A very but, human story. But yeah, not comic book hero. Um, yeah, so would you teach it? Could you teach it? Would you teach it as a history, as a, as a narrative, um, as a, like a memoir, autobiography? That's what I think it blends so many genres. Yeah. You know, for me, I mean, obviously, in some ways, it's one of the most American stories, and that America represents this beacon of freedom uh, from the old and the terrible and to a America that's promising. Um, perhaps it would be best almost in a ninth grade world history classroom. Right. Because it is a very old Europe versus a new America story. Um, and in that way, I find it incredibly compelling. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I could see it. And I, like I said before, when I taught it once or twice when I was at a boarding school. And that, that situation was very different because a lot of those classes were tutorials, like one-on-one -on -one or one-on-two kids. So sure. it would, you just sort of literally walk through the book with the student. Um, but I think this could go well in an American experiment, our humanities class, in that it frames the Holocaust, but it has an American, it's an American story ultimately. It's a father-son relationship against the background of this Holocaust survivor. Sure. And so, then the visual art is so 
brilliant. I yeah. mean, there's a lot you can do as far as bringing in humanities and, and the approach to sequential art or graphic novels. Well, and it's just, it's arresting because since it's done in a narrative format uh, where he's literally talking to his father and recording his father's stories, like, th th it doesn't necessarily have a flow. Like, there, there's a moment, in fact, where his father was talking about a time he felt, he, does, he doesn't want to use the word suicidal because his wife obviously committed suicide, but he was at a very low point. Right. And he's talking about the numbered tattoos, and he just happens to run into a priest who is fluent in, like, Semitic history and a little bit of the Old Testament, and he talks about how his numbers are symbolic in a way that he's going to survive. Right. And the son's like, that guy is incredible. And his father just ends with, I never saw him again. Yeah, he right? just disappeared like so many, yeah. And, and just like... And because it's a vignette, it's like a page, maybe a page and a half. We see the son interact in this shocked way, and then the story continues without it. Like, it pulls you out of the story in the way that Forrest Gump is sitting on the park bench and just sometimes says, and that's all I can talk about that. Yeah. Right? And it, it, it's, it's an incredibly important piece of art because of its notoriety, but there's a reason sometimes that good works of art trans like just spread across the understanding of people. I mean, you've taught at a couple different schools uh, as well. Is anyone, do you know, I mean, is this in the curriculum, the sort of the canon of teachers? Should it be? It definitely should be. Yeah, um, I agree. I think it's amazing. I'm, I'm trying to think. But it's now. not one that you hear much of people teaching. I think comics go in and out of fashion. Yeah. And right now, in a time period of the MCU and, you know, movies that make a billion dollars a pop, I wonder if people look more at comics as art or less at comics of art, right? Like, when you were in the 90s and in the doldrums of, like, the Schumacher Batman movies, no one wanted to talk about comics because they were all schmaltzy and shiny. Right. Um, then with, you know, Snyder making them really dark, it just felt different. So I, I don't know. I, I, I kind of want to now do a unit on graphic novels where every kid has to do one just so we have an excuse to have them talk about this. No, I agree. I think that would be a really fascinating look at a, a genre that's probably underplayed academically, yeah. at least at the high school level, or maybe at least at Marist. Yeah. Um, but there's so much you can talk about. You can talk about the storytelling, the characters, as well as just each each panel is its own work of art. And you could you could go a deep dive and spend a whole period on, on any given panel, I think. And, uh, you know, and we just did in our class this picture of the Boston Massacre, the very famous woodcut, the Bloody Massacre by Paul Revere. And every year I have a kid that points out the dog in the bottom Oh, of corner. course, they love the dog. Um, and, you know, we explain that just like in a horror movie trope, like when you see a dog in a, you know, an erotic thriller, you know, the, kid, the dog is the thing that's going to die. I wonder if that's not at play here. Like when you see a mouse being tortured, in some ways it's less human, but therefore more gutting. Right. Right. And. Brenda Murphy is going to be on the season when we do um, Man's Search for Meaning. But, like, every year I know he shows Schindler's List. And I wonder at a certain point if our brain just starts to try to avoid thinking about the horror. And there's something about animals that refocuses it. I, I, I don't know. It's an interesting choice. Yeah, it's, it's both distancing um, but also allows for a, a different approach to a difficult topic. Yeah. Um, and, and still makes its point. Uh, metaphorically and visually. Um, so yeah, I mean, just to cut to the chase, I would love to teach this. So maybe we can work it into our curriculum uh, later this year for a graphic novel unit or something. Yeah, I think that. Or even just copy a few pages and discuss what's going on um, when we get to the uh, World War II and and the survivors after that, the aftermath. Yeah. Uh, just to wrap up the actual narrative of the story, um, after I mean, we we talked about the the meta narrative. 
But what's going on in the story? I mean, he survives Auschwitz. Uh, he's eventually freed by the Americans. Uh, he tries to go back into business, but more and more they're hearing of how Europeans are still violent against the Jews. Like, there's Poles who are shocked that the, the Jews are coming back and are trying to shoo them away. Uh, and so, with business contacts severed, he comes to America in the desperate hope that he can make a new life for himself. Uh, and ends up in New York, like so many Jews do afterward. Right. Um, and you mentioned before, and in MetaMask, um, Spiegelman talks about how he got a lot, several movie offers, but never happened, and yeah. it's probably for the best, I think. Totally. Yeah. And it allows this art to remain very personal. It's the same thing when you hear with a lot of graphic novel people. You know, like there was never a Calvin and Hobbes show or movie for that same reason, and it's different. But when you're writing something personal, you lose control of the narrative. Version. Exactly. Right. Right. Uh, I also can't imagine what an '80s animated version of this would have looked like. Right. I mean, it's either Ralph Bakshi or Don Bluth, right? Like, those are the people, because Disney never would have done this. Oh, no. He's practically a villain in it. They, they get referenced yes, Disney. Yes, they do, <laughs> yeah. They make fun of that mouse, yes. Um, so, yeah, uh, and, I mean, to Mike's point, uh, this we, we, we thought this would be a good episode to start the season with, because hopefully you guys uh, know it. Uh, but if you don't, this is when I can guarantee your local library has a copy and if not, you can get a used copy for less than ten bucks, um, and it's approachable. Yeah, it's very accessible, uh, and and like any good work of art, we we say this a lot. It rewards rereading or reviewing, or, um, revisiting all those things. Yeah, I'm embarrassed to say I don't think I've read it since college, and uh, even though I I was so good, I immediately bought a copy of it. Yeah. Um, so it's nice to dust these kinds of things off. Um, anyway, just very quickly, uh, Mike, are you reading anything right now? Uh, currently, yeah. Um, a fellow teacher, a, a new uh, Jeff Rumiano in Marist, um, gave me um, his copy of Tim O'Brien's Dad's Maybe book. Interesting. Which is a collection of letters that he started writing or journals uh, to his sons because I think he was a father at 58 and he realized I might not be around and – and um, I'm about a third of the way into it. Some sure. of it I've read before and seen excerpted, but you know I love O'Brien, so sure. um, yeah, it's good. Um, I, I will say that uh, department chair of mine, uh, Matt Romano, recommended that book, and we almost put an excerpt, I think, in our in our uh, reader uh, before we saw how expensive it would be. Uh, so Matt Romano will be here later this uh, year as well. Uh, I'm reading. I just read a book that I will recommend because it plays on a lot of tropes uh, called The Final Girl Support Group. Mm which is a horror book, uh, but the basic premise is that uh, all these slasher movies of the 80s were based on real events, and this is a support group for final girls who oh, survived nice. it. Uh, and if you know your horror movies, you can kind of tell what they're supposed to have survived, uh, but now someone is picking them off one by one. So oh. it is a horror movie. It is based in very real kind of PTSD kind of like thing, but it's it, I just flew through it. It was great. Is it, um, is it the sort of thing that's like a greatest hits? They're referencing all these other characters and bringing them all together, like a yeah. super cast kind of thing? Exactly. Uh, so, for example, there's a girl named Heather, uh, based on Heather Langenkamp from the Nightmare series, uh, who responded to her incident by taking drugs, which, if you know the movies, they take drugs to stay awake, and so she becomes an addict. And her monster is called the Dream King instead of Freddy Krueger, but you can very clearly tell how it's assembled, and they right. all end up at a summer camp. Oh, that's so, fun. I love that premise. Um, it's great. It, it flows quickly. And then I guess just very quickly, I've read an essayist named Jenny Lawson, who's one of the funniest things I've ever written. Not the kind of thing that will end up in a class other than maybe an essay of hers, but it's 
broken but in a good way is one of the funniest things I've ever heard. Awesome. So um, you want to talk about what we have teed up next because we actually have done some planning this season. <laughs> yes. Wow. <laughs> uh, so our next episode, uh, we're going to change our format a skosh. Rather than coming out every other week, we're going to come out twice a month. This is obviously coming out October 1st. If you're listening to it the day it drops, thanks for saying subscribe. Thank you. Yeah. Um, the second uh, is going to be October 15th, and we thought we would do kind of a spooky Halloween-y kind of month, and we're going to uh, do some Edgar Allan Poe selections. Uh, we're going to do The Raven and The Fall of the House of Usher. Classic. Um, and it's going to keep it light. We've insert, introduced some games this season. We're going to do a secret Santa book exchange kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to have a lot of guests coming up, and uh, I'm going to have uh, another academic professional author come on and talk about a book called White Flight in November. Yeah, um, and then, so overall, I think we're trying to get more guests yeah. other than just um, Nick, nothing against you. No, please. Um, but <laughs> I think it's a fun dynamic when we had guests last season to uh, get that in, so we've got some people lined up and um, very excited to talk about their books, their choices. Exactly. Uh, so thanks for listening, subscribing. Uh, please keep sharing. Yeah, uh, spread the word. Yeah, w- whenever we hit the charts, uh, it's a little jolt of excitement for us. So Absolutely. Always good to hear from you. Yeah, and, send uh, suggestions, look at our Twitter. Um, yeah. We're going to be doing a big uh, bracket to figure out some books coming up, and we'll be trying to interact with you guys. Uh, that's at required underscore pod on Twitter. And uh, thanks, guys. Thank you. Required Reading is hosted by Dr. Nick Hoffman and Mike Burns. It is a product of Mare's Podcasting and Do Better Podcasting. The theme song is written and performed by Davis Burns. The podcast is engineered and produced by Nick Hoffman. The opinions expressed here are the opinions of the hosts and guests and do not represent Mare's Thanks for listening.